The interview you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia on Germantown Community Radio at 92.9 FM, WGGTLP Philadelphia, and gtownradio.com. I'm Kay Wood, the host of Planet Philadelphia, and Linda Rosenwein, our assistant producer reporter, is here with me. We are very happy to be able to have two wonderful guests today. We will be speaking with Amy Laura Kahn and with Sarah McKinstry Wu. And we're going to be discussing questions about how climate change in the environment and women interact or intersect, because there are all sorts of ways things affect people. And how we do like to start is for people to tell us a little bit about themselves. So I guess we'll start. Amy, Laura, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Amy Laura Khan. I am a visiting professor and director of the Environmental Justice Clinic at Vermont Law School. I'm a community-based movement lawyer, and I work on issues of environmental, climate, land, and food justice and I do so in a way that practices a law and organizing model. So we use the law as a way of supporting larger uh, organizing strategies, movements led by the people who are most affected by the justice issues that we work on. And for many years, I did this work in Philadelphia uh, in partnership with Sarah. All right. And Sarah, would you tell us about yourself? Hi, I'm, my name is Sarah McKinstry Wu. I'm the director of grant making at the Bread and Roses Community Fund. Um, Bread and Roses is Philadelphia's social justice fund. And there we move money to organizers. Although my title says director, um, I have the pleasure of facilitating community grant making committees who make um, communal choices about how Bread and Roses funds will fund the movement. And I come to this work, much like Amy Laura, um, from an environmental and climate crisis planning background. So I have been doing this work in Philadelphia for many moons. And listeners of this show may remember when I was last a guest, I was the deputy director in Philadelphia's Office of Sustainability, where I helped to write Philadelphia's first climate adaptation plan, which is called Growing Stronger, and also had the pleasure of being co-chair for many years with Amy Laura on Philadelphia's Food Policy Advisory Council. We see that the COP26 chose to have a gender day. Tell us about it, um, what was accomplished, and how could more be accomplished? So what I can say is that the, the Council of the Parties process, the UN process for bringing global leadership together to direct and coordinate around climate policy has just begun to adopt a gender lens. You know, the process that happened in, in Glasgow this year resulting in the COP26 agreement is, I think, one of the first years in which gender was really explicitly made uh, central to the process and that there's a gender working group that has been uh, convened that led up to that being the case. We just wanted to get your views on the COP because it wasn't all that long ago. And we were impressed that they had a gender day because we weren't aware of that happening in the past. I think it's a great sign that COP is thinking about how people's identities interact with the way that they experience the climate crisis. You know, I think COP moving away from a technocratic perspective and to a more humanist perspective is 
the right direction. And I think having a gender day is certainly a great indication that that shift in perspective is starting. I don't think it's complete, but I'm glad it started. I'd like to get your views on why this needs such a high focus, because I don't think that a lot of people listening will have an idea of why gender and climate change are intertwined or why it's important to consider gender when you're considering climate change. You want to start, Sarah, and then I'll jump in? Sure. I think that gender and all systems of oppression are extremely linked to the causes of climate change. So I came from a very technocratic perspective. You know, I worked on greenhouse gas emissions planning for many years. I worked on um, figuring out what our climate risk is and how we can meet those climate risks. And the more I worked on the climate crisis, the more I realized this is not a math problem. This is a people problem, right? This is a problem with the way we've organized our society, right? And for better or worse, gender is one of the ways that we organize our society. Um, And so I like to think of the climate crisis and gender oppression as two symptoms of the same root cause, which is just all these systems of oppression that are helping folks to hold on to power. So what I will say is we know how to solve the climate crisis and get out of the climate crisis. It's not a knowledge issue. It's a systems issue and it's a relational issue. How can we be in relationship in a way that helps us to apply that knowledge and get to the solutions that we know are necessary? So I think that to me is the broadest way that gender and climate are related. I'll say a little bit more about a reliance on science. (laughs) So I think if you study the history of gender, the gender binary is actually a relatively new concept, this idea that you can split um, humans into two categories and that there's a right way to know what your gender is based on fact, right? Similarly, I think we rely on this scientific knowledge as the solution for climate change it gives us false specificity, right? Like we can point to greenhouse gas emissions in the air and say like, well, the greenhouse gas emissions are the problem, but in fact, it's distracting from all of the systems of power that are allowing certain people to uh, emit greenhouse gas emissions consequence-free or with fewer consequences than people who hold less power, gender being one of the ways that we hold hierarchies and decide who holds power. So that's the big broad frame. And then I'll let Amy Laura talk about some more more drilled down. Well, I'm going to stay broad for a minute because I think that's a really good way, you know, when you start to talk about the systems of consolidating and maintaining power, it's important to talk about the climate crisis in the context of gender. It is equally important and necessary to step back and say, let's do that in an intersectional way because we are as individuals not just one identity, but layered identities and the ways in which power is kind of held and consolidated um, has been around consolidation of wealth and around race and around gender and around uh, nationality. And the, the ways in which the climate crisis is impacting people is very much based on wealth, race, gender, and nationality, but not in silos, such that people who are multiply marginalized you know, someone who is a a woman of color or a trans person of color or person with disabilities who is also of color will be even more marginalized in the context of the climate crisis. And we need to recognize solutions that also recognize people as whole people. 
on the one hand, we need to be sort of at the kind of 30,000 feet understanding how power is consolidated around these, um, these axes, and then un- understand at, on a very relational level and a personal level how people are impacted based on their layered identities. And so there are all of these ways in which the climate crisis is affecting people based on gender and based on kind of where people live across a gender spectrum, but also on things like race, wealth, um, disability, et cetera. Let's drill down because I think often it isn't meaningful or doesn't hit people until they hear the specifics. Um, so when you say what are the, the specifics, you mean how are, you know, if we're talking about... How is gender and climate change, how are they intertwined in a specific, give examples of specific ways? And I want to cite to a wonderful book called All We Can Save, uh, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis, edited by Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and, and Catherine K. Wilkinson. And it's it's a really wonderful resource, kind of looking at a whole range of challenges and solutions around the climate crisis and has a great resource list to a lot of research around the, the risks and burdens, but also the, the kind of empowering facts. Uh, the data says women and girls face greater risk of displacement or death from extreme weather disasters, that there's a, a growing proof of a link between climate change and gender-based violence. And here I'm actually citing the, the women of all we can save that work is often tied to gender and in many ways, labor is uh, is a place where, whether it's the loss of work or in- increased risk, um, that gender can be tied to either loss of income or increased risk because of the climate crisis. And, and that's not only one gender or another. It's if we think about the fact that, you know, people who are incarcerated are majority male and people who are incarcerated are facing a set of greater risks from climate crisis, in part because of the conditions in prisons themselves, which environmentally are abhorrent, but also because if you look at the wildfires in California, people who are incarcerated are being put on the front lines to fight those fires. So there, there is not a clear factoid that can say this is how gender impacts your risk or your burden from climate change. On the flip side, there is also some really kind of strong data about the role of women in leadership in um, addressing the climate crisis. And, you know, there are some studies saying that on the one hand, women are unrepresented in leadership in non-governmental organizations. And of course, in our own governance across the U.S. at every level, where women and people of marginalized genders are in leadership that you see stronger climate policies, you know, and we can speculate about why that is. And people are kind of digging into that question, but, you know, on the one hand, women and people of marginalized genders don't get as many resources to get to leadership, to be in leadership and to direct where we're heading with policy. On the other hand, uh, when we are there and and at the center, um, we see shifts in policy in, in ways that are quite meaningful. Project Drawdown has stated that they feel that the issue of women and girls, I think particularly with reproductive uh, control and rights and also education, is very important for climate change. Two things I'll say there. One is I definitely have all we can save on my bedside table. (laughs) And when I'm feeling climate doom, I will pick it up and read it and remember that there are folks who have 
good ideas to meet the climate crisis and who are building power to be able to implement those ideas. Um, yeah, and Linda, as you said, Project Drawdown, I, I can't remember if it's like five and six, two of the top 10 solutions to the climate crisis in Project Drawdown are educating women and girls and creating universal access to family planning. Again, I think that is an example of that the solution to the climate crisis is building power in marginalized communities. Like, yes, the goal is to help women family plan, but I think the the broader goal is to help women family plan and then occupy positions of power so that to Amy Laura's point, we can have more nation states, more decision-making bodies where there are women and people of marginalized gender who have decision-making power. Because as we know, when that happens, we get to more effective solutions faster. I think that Project Drawdown, having those two on the list, it, it's not just an intervention specific to education and family planning. I think you will not get to a world where women have access to education and family planning <laughs> without basically breaking gender oppression. Um, and so I think really that was like a somewhat technocratic way of saying <laughs> one of the top 10 solutions to climate change is ending gender oppression. It sounds to me like women and all oppressed classes need more power. And one of the things I was thinking of as an example of how that might work, our healthcare system with silo different people's needs, for instance, whether it's mental health or women's reproductive rights and uh, transgender treatment. I mean, it's like the way the system is set up, all of these things are viewed separately. And I was wondering if you thought possibly there might be a different way if different people were in power. Well, I'm going to answer by analogy, because I think what you're describing is very analogous to our environmental law and policy regime, which is also very siloed. Um, so in the environmental context, for example, our environmental statutes look at regulating individual point sources. You know, how do we regulate and ensure that a, a regulated facility and a polluting facility doesn't get above a particular pollutant, you know, doesn't get above a certain level for each of the individual regulated pollutants. But our laws don't look at, well, what if you have five polluting facilities in one neighborhood and what is the impact of those five polluting facilities together? Plus you have a highway that runs right through that facility. Plus you might have a landfill and also flooding at the same time. And so we don't actually have laws or policies that actually address um, meaningfully the cumulative impacts of multiple pollutants and multiple environmental uh, and now climate burdens on individual bodies and also whole communities. And I think the what the environmental and climate justice movements are actually asking for are much more holistic solutions. And I think for things like um, primary prevention, where you're actually, you know, looking at the root causes and addressing environmental and climate risks before you get to the point of harming people. In the healthcare context, I think we're asking for, and we need something very similar, which is to be able to focus on wellness, to focus on primary care and prevention in a way that actually gets at the root causes before you, you see harm. And what we also then have is, you know, a look at 
well, how do the healthcare industry, you know, our healthcare needs interact with our environmental and climate risks and burdens to be able to look at those set of policies together to say like, if we're reducing toxics over here, the benefits for our healthcare system and the, the reduction in costs for our healthcare system will, would be enormous. I was in a conversation recently with a set of advocates about state cancer plans, for example, had to affirmatively be addressing toxics reduction and also racial inequity. What would the benefits be there for cancer reduction and for reduction in costs for our healthcare system? I don't think we fully know because we're really looking at things not just siloed within each sector, but siloed you know, across sectors. What I love about that question is that it focuses on care, right? And I think that that concept and that word is really actually interesting in in this question of how do the climate crisis and gender intersect. Part of what gender oppression has done is made care not a thing that our systems of power support. Our social safety net is I don't know, is it a net? <laughs> like, does it exist? <laughs> is it providing safety? Um, and and I actually think that a lot of those solutions that Amy Laura was talking about before that show up in All We Can Save and that come from countries that are led by women are care solutions. This is part of the reason why I think the Green New Deal is so brilliant is if you lead with universal basic income, you have covered the care needs broadly speaking, of folks. So if you have UBI, then you get to be in a space where you don't aren't using individual people and their care or lack of care as sort of chits in your uh, negotiation. So it, the way I always think about it is like, if we had universal basic income, then all the coal miners have UBI. They, get to, they are cared for. We have cared for them as a society and we don't have to care for them by continuing to let them participate in the fossil fuel economy. And so I think getting to a place where care solutions carry as much weight as greenhouse gas emissions reductions and technical solutions carry currently is actually a necessary unlocking around getting us to a place where we can actually live in a world where we're not tumbling toward climate crisis. I think because we don't have that basic level of care for each human in the United States, um, we then often hear these spurious arguments that we have to continue to lean on these systems that are actually going to kill us all in the long run because otherwise folks won't be able to feed their families now. Um, But we do have enough in the United States. We have enough resources where everyone can feed their families if we just provided the right systems of care. And so I think unlocking the negative connotations around care that are all wrapped up in gender oppression would be really unlocking for the climate movement. So UBI is universal basic income, is that right? Okay. Yes. Since at least one of you is involved with the law, tell us what are the legal issues regarding women and climate change It's interesting to think about how to gender and the climate crisis come together in the law, because as I was saying, in the context of, you know, environmental law and policy and the healthcare system, you know, we're pretty siloed. And for example, there's an environmental justice bill, Environmental Justice Act for all of 2021 that was introduced a couple of years back that was actually created through a, a really robust community engagement model you know, the focus has really been from an environmental justice perspective, and and I think with climate as well, 
on you know the disproportionate impact on community and and rightly so on on communities of color on indigenous peoples and people with low incomes and so the legislation itself is focused more on in addressing those disparate impacts and at the same time there is starting to be a, this recognition even in that bill around the um and i think also in the you know in some proposed language around shifts in policy at the federal level to include both gender and disability in the environmental justice context the biden administration also issued executive order 13985 at the beginning of the administration in one of the like in the very early days possibly on the first day i can't remember executive order 13985 is focused on a whole of government approach to addressing racial inequity but also addressing underserved populations across a kind of wide range um and there's a real broad definition of underserved communities from the perspective of the Biden administration which is i think really heartening to see i'm actually going to bring that up so i can actually get it right for the purpose of the executive order uh, the term equity means the consistent and systematic fair just and impartial treatment of all individuals including individuals who belong to underserved communities that that have been denied such treatment and then they have a very broad definition including black latino and and indigenous and native american persons asian americans and pacific islanders and other persons of color members of religious minorities lesbian gay bisexual transgender and queer persons persons with disabilities persons who live in rural areas and persons otherwise adversely affected by persistent poverty or inequality. And it's interesting here because gender is not named specifically, but at the same time I think we can think about women and mar- people of marginalized gender as persons adversely affected by persistent poverty and inequality across the board and then also think about historic um marginalization of for example women of color, indigenous women, etc. and so this mandates a kind of systematic approach to embedding fairness in decision making and ensuring that every single one of our federal agencies has a proactive approach to engaging with underserved communities and addressing racial equity so we're waiting to see what happens with this because there's a due date at which point all of the federal agencies have to issue some form of plan So I think this is a kind of inflection point or a moment of possibility to see how the federal government kind of rises to the challenge here and in particular what is the EPA's approach here what is the Department of Energy's approach how do all of these agencies that are addressing issues of environmental and climate injustice going to heed the call I think someone said earlier that women were more prone to being assaulted because of climate change and and I suppose that happens in probably every crisis but yet again for most of our policies not many actually mention effects on women specifically So Amy Laura's model of movement law and you know the work that I'm doing at Bread and Roses is again all work in service of the folks who are experiencing oppression and marginalization right so we let folks tell us what they want us to work on and what i would say is a lot of gender organizing isn't explicitly around climate but i see as a climate professional big connections which is what i you know have been 
communicating to you all, right? It's like when folks get together and demand better healthcare for everyone, when people get together and demand broadly anything that has to do with the end of gender oppression, I can see how it's easy for folks to not understand that that's climate work. But I do understand that as climate work. I understand that as a necessary piece of breaking the system that continues to perpetuate the causes of the climate crisis. I actually truly believe that that is a more effective way to break the causes of the climate crisis than a lot of our organizing around, to Amy Laura's point, like, let's regulate that one emission from that one power plant down 3% less than it used to be, despite the fact that that regulating of that power plant might reduce greenhouse gas emissions faster than getting better health care for women. <laughs> I actually think that building the power and shifting the systems that allow women to show up and get what they need, it's the work that will get us out of the climate crisis. Reducing emissions 3% is not going to actually get us out of the climate crisis. To me, that's what I would like to say to you all is like work that doesn't look on the surface like climate work is climate work. You know, we've talked about silos in the healthcare system and we talked about silos in environmental regulation, but I think the idea that all of these movements are not the same movement is actually part of what's in our way too, right? Like, so we feel like we have to choose a cause, right? We have to choose women's rights, or we have to choose gender rights, or we have to choose climate movement. And I'm like, they're all the same, <laughs> friends. Like, we're all working on the same thing. Um, and if we can get together and understand that we're working on the same thing, people who hold power now will be quaking in their boots, right? Um, part of how they continue to hold power is that we see these problems as separate and so we don't coalesce together and work on them as one problem. But if we did, we would be quite mighty. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. This I was very interesting. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support. 